You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. This fall, we're going to have a chance to change the way we draw our congressional and legislative lines. We want to spend the rest of the hour talking about Proposal 2 on the ballot. Detroit Today producer Jake Neer spoke with David Daly. He's the author of a book about gerrymandering nationwide. Uh, It is called Rat Bleep. Uh, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Here is their conversation. David Daly, welcome to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Thanks. So I wanted to start off with a quick excerpt from the Michigan chapter of your book, which, by the way, we will be referring to throughout the interview as (laughs) rat bleeped. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Most certainly is. I think people will understand what it means. (laughs) Right. So, So this excerpt, it's in the Michigan chapter of the book. And you're driving basically just the edge of the 14th congressional district here in southeast Michigan. I I just thought that this part was really fascinating. You say, this may be the mapmaker's favorite dig. Time and time and again, whenever the 14th might include a local landmark, Fago Soda's headquarters, the Detroit Zoo, a major General Motors plant, it contorts itself in another direction. There will be no easy campaign cash and no famous constituency for the member of Congress from the 14th. It is as if the mapmaker found the very line between hope and despair and etched it into these streets. Uh, Really quick, just talk a little bit about that experience, just sort of viewing the two sides of this district line. When you look at these maps at street level... It is just so clear and so stark what the mapmakers were doing, how purposeful it is, and just how destructive it is to a community, let alone to a democracy. I started this trip about 8.30 in the morning. One day, it was it was a, a very hot summer day in August, and I was just armed with the turn-by-turn instructions um, from the, the uh, census tracts, and um, you just see it with every step of the way, uh, there would be all these wild juts. I mean, the, the 14th is is kind of like a strange snake, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it starts in these, you know, super poor, um, you know, neighborhoods of, of Hamtrank and kind of, you know, it it, it 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 kind of gobbles up all of those poor communities along the, the water and then it kind of stretches out with eight miles as its axis and then it kind of has a, a long snake-like head that kind of drives up through the suburbs very, very carefully, and then grabs Pontiac. And the goal of this district is to grab as many African-Americans as possible to connect the poorest neighborhoods of Detroit with Pontiac and to create a district that elects an African-American member, a Democrat, with about 85% of the vote, and then it bleaches all of the surrounding uh, districts more um, uh, white, more conservative, and Republicans win those. Um, the 14th is really the, the key to the gerrymandering of Michigan. Um, it looks odd on a map. Let me tell you, every single turn is just so distinct. You can't believe it. I mean, I went through the day, like every single time there was a cutout or a twist or a turn, I'd be like, this can't actually be anything. And it always was. And it was always mm. obvious. It was as if the map makers knew precisely what they were doing. Mm. And you actually talked to one of those map makers, right? Uh, I did. You're, you have a scene not too long after that. You're at a 
Big B Coffee that I actually know well in Lansing <laughs> uh, with Jeff Timmer. Yes. And he said, look, I, we, we didn't really have much uh, say in how this map was going to – in this how this district was going to look. It was uh, – the basically our discretion came down to a few fine points is what he claimed. Yeah, and then their emails came out earlier this year, right? And they talk really clearly about how they wanted to pack all of the, quote, dem garbage into as few districts as possible. Listen, politicians love to say that, you know, they had no choice here. Um, these districts are a geography. It's simply where people live. Um, well, if that's the case, maybe politicians wouldn't spend hundreds of millions of dollars every 10 years um, trying to control a redistricting. Uh, their actions and the, the, the intensity with which they cling to the power to draw these lines, I think, uh, suggests that, that the lines are perhaps a little bit more important than they're willing to. Let on. Hmm. I, I want to talk about Michigan's sort of standing in the nation in terms of our congressional districts and the way that our lines are drawn. Where does Michigan rank in your mind in the national landscape of ger- gerrymandered states? Michigan's one of the most gerrymandered states in the nation. Um, I would say North Carolina, Pennsylvania um, are right up there with the uh, top two. Um, I mean, Pennsylvania certainly has been um, fixed a little bit by virtue of the uh, state the Supreme Court ruling there. Earlier this year, they'll have a new congressional map um, in the fall, so we will see what happens. But, um, I mean, Michigan is a swing state. It's a, it's a competitive state. You know, it can go for Barack Obama in 2012. It can go for, for Donald Trump in 2016. It's got 14 congressional districts. Um, and even in years in which, you know, Democrats win 200,000 more votes, as happened in 2012, Republicans take nine of the 14 seats. Um, in 2014, Democrats win 50,000 more votes. Republicans still take nine of the 14 seats. In 2016, Republicans win a handful more votes. They still take nine of the 14 seats. Michigan is a swing state, but there is no swing anywhere in these congressional districts. You know, your districts have got less swing th- than Coldplay. <laughs> no, that's, that's a first for me. Uh, now... <laughs> Uh, how much of this, though, has to do with the way that the, the places that we live here in Michigan? That's another claim that you hear a lot, especially from Republicans and people who oppose any effort to change the way that we draw our lines, is this has a lot to do with where people just where people live. We're very segregated here in Michigan. How does that play into this? You know, um, Michigan is not more segregated, for example, than any of the other states that have been extremely gerrymandered. Um if you're talking about Wisconsin as well, you know, most of the African-Americans in Wisconsin live in Milwaukee, um, you know, or or Pennsylvania in which, um, you know, the the African-American um, um, a demographic tends to, to live in either Pittsburgh or or in Philadelphia, um, except time and again, when the courts have looked at this question, um, and they have studied very carefully and heard all of the testimony from folks who say that this is, you know, is it gerrymandering or is it a geography? Is it, you know, natural clustering? The courts have consistently said it's gerrymandering, that the political geography of these states might be a percentage point or so of the gerrymandering. Uh, that, you know, natural geography plays a tiny, tiny role, but it is not the reason for the extensive bias that you find in these maps. Geography has become a convenient um, excuse, um, and it kind of makes sense 
except if you actually look at the data and the maps, it simply doesn't hold up. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm speaking with David Daly, author of a book about gerrymandering throughout the country called Rat Bleeped. Of course, that is a uh, censored version of the title, but the uh, subtitle is The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy. Uh, And uh, David, I want to ask you, I mean, Michigan, Michiganders will vote this fall on a plan that would create an independent commission to draw district lines with equal parts Democrat, uh, Republican and nonpartisan members of this um, panel. Uh, How does this proposal square with other strategies employed in other states right now? I think this is the best proposal for an independent commission that I've ever seen any place in the country. I mean, independent commissions are, are only as good as the criteria that they are given and the the way that they are are staffed um, and who you, you you put on them and then the the, the process that you give them. Um, there are a handful of examples around the country of independent uh, commissions. There is uh, there's Arizona, which is a five person commission, two people appointed by Democrats, two people appointed by Republicans, and an independent chair that kind of comes through the state appellate court process. That, as you can imagine has been kind of a disaster in many ways because you've got four people who are immediately partisans and then one person who's an independent in the middle who both sides try to game or or place in that position as sort of a Trojan horse. It has been, you know, it has not taken a redistricting out of the smoke-filled rooms and brought it into the public eye. Um, when California drew their commission, they learned from the mistakes in Arizona. And they said, we're going to have a 14-person commission. It's going to be five Democrats, five Republicans, four independents. Um, We're not going to have one chair. We're going to have a rotating chair. If a map is going to be uh, passed, it's not going to be enough to have a majority. It's got to have folks, you know, it it has to have a majority of the Democrats, the Republicans, and also the the independents. Um, And you actually saw maps in that case that protected communities of interest and you had maps that really created truer representation in California after 2010. Um, and Michigan has been able to benefit from the examples you know, of both of those states. Um, they've been able to look at California and say, well, a bigger commission worked. You know, let's borrow that. Um, the idea that you have to have agreement amongst Democrats, Republicans and independents worked. Let's borrow that. The idea that you have to write a paper at the end of this process and justify the decisions that you made. That worked. Let's borrow that. Um, You know, what didn't work in California? Well, you know, it turned out that the the commission didn't necessarily have enough money to, um, you know, staff itself and, you know, make those decisions. And the legislature tried to use dollars, you know, as a, a cudgel over them. Um, so, you know, let's give them some independence to be sure th- that the legislature and the politicians can't try to sneak their hands in and control it in a sneaky way. Um, this it, uh, In a lot of ways, this commission has been set up to work the way we want our politics to, right? We want to have Democrats, Republicans, independents of all kind in a room together um, after taking you know, public testimony and having public hearings around the state and having real conversations about what a community of interest is, about where people think that these lines ought to go, and then to deliberate it 
right out in the open, in public, and then to justify their activity. This is the way it should be done. Conversation, community, consensus. If our politics actually worked this way, we wouldn't think our institutions were as broken as they are. Politicians have tried to keep this process in Ohio. They, they called their secret back room the bunker. And that's where they were doing their redistricting. In Wisconsin, it was in a secret map room. I mean, here in Michigan, it was a a bunch of operatives in Lansing who essentially drew the maps on their own, handed them over to the politicians, and they just introduced the bill, and the legislators rammed it through essentially Mm -hmm. in the dark under, you know, cover of secrecy. That is not the way the building blocks of our democracy, these district lines, ought to be crafted. We ought to have a voice in it. This gives people that. Why have any partisans on the panel? Uh, Well, because um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it's really hard to take, you know, the the politics out of, you know, anything that is inherently partisan. Um, I mean, if you were to, you know, pick any, you know, 13 people walking down the street, they're going to have political opinions. I mean, um, so what I think that the goal of this is, you know, is not to pretend that it is the ultimate solution or to pretend that you can ever take all of the politics out out of anything in our lives, uh, but to force people to have conversations, to to have those conversations in public, to allow lots of people from the public to be involved in that conversation, and then for the uh, decisions ultimately to have to come from consensus and compromise. Hmm. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected an opportunity to weigh in on gerrymandered states this past session. Um, do you see gerrymandering finding its way back to the Supreme Court at this point? Um, and do you think we'll ever see a federal response or answer to this question? They really missed an opportunity this year. Um, and I had hoped that those cases from Wisconsin to Maryland would go another way. There is, however, another case from North Carolina that um, will be arriving at the Supreme Court this session, most likely. Uh, that is another case regarding the congressional districts uh, there in which um, a three-judge federal panel um, ruled them unconstitutional throughout the entire set of maps um, as as a partisan gerrymander, said it was unconstitutional, had you know an amazing amount of academic and statistical work behind it, as well as you know the testimony and, and draft maps and emails of all of the operatives essentially admitting what they were doing. They said that they drew a 10-Republican, 3-Democrat map in North Carolina because they could not come up with a way to find an 11-2 map. Um, So, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty honest. That's what they did. That case will be back at the court um, most likely this session. Um, And there are other ones from, you know, I think the Wisconsin and Maryland cases will uh, find their way back. There's a case in Michigan that is, you know, getting underway. will probably begin in February of next year. Um, And there's also, you know, a lot of state constitutional challenges, you know, like the ones that we just saw in Pennsylvania that was so successful. And I imagine that there will be more challenges at the state level as well. As we head toward 2021 and a new set of maps and as redistricting starts up all over again, I imagine we are going to see a continued set of challenges. Uh, A year that Michigan is possibly going to lose another congressional seat. So that is something for uh, listeners, obviously, to pay attention to there uh, because that will play into this as well. Now, there's also uh, some questions from people who oppose Prop 2 here in Michigan that say – for one thing, uh, that this there is a constitutional argument to be made against it that this is taking the power away from the legislature, which is the body that they interpret as being 
constitutionally guaranteed the right to draw these lines. What's your response to that? Well, I think the Michigan state constitution starts with the words that all power belongs to the people. Um, And I think that when the people decide that the legislature is not drawing these lines in the best interest of the people, the people have to step forth and change that. Um, And I think that there are a, a lot of folks who would argue on the other side of this that, you know, the elected representatives ought to be the people who are, you know, drawing these lines. They've been elected. They've been chosen. Well, they've been elected and chosen from districts that they themselves draw and then entrench themselves into. So it's not as if that's, um, you know, fair. Um, it's not as if it's essentially even small d democratic. Um, so, you know, what you have seen in Michigan um, is that the state house here, as well as the congressional delegation, um, you had more votes for, for Democrats in the state house in 2012, 2014, and depending on how you count a couple of the uncontested races, also in 2016. Republicans have held control of that chamber in each of those years. Uh, so to say that the elected representatives ought to get the right to draw those districts, well, it's the elected representatives who've got fewer statewide votes drawing these statewide districts. Um, I would suggest that if what we want is to be certain that the side with the most votes wins, that our elections are responsive, that there can be a shift one way or another whenever you know one side has more votes, um, you have to take that power away from legislators and put it back in the hands of the people. Mm. Uh, let's say that the ballot proposal fails in November, uh, leaving us again with the status quo, the way things are right now. Uh, what do you see as the possible avenues for change when it comes to restructuring the way that these lines are drawn? I think that you will see um, a real dramatic increase in the power of gerrymandering in this next cycle. If something is not done about this now, when these lines are drawn in 2021, um, it will be done with technology that is even more sophisticated and big data that is even more all-knowing than the the information and data sets that the mapmakers had in 2011. Um, so these lines will endure for another decade, uh, quite possibly. I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, those, you know, the, the 9-5 congressional uh, split that has remained the same in 12 and 14 and in 16. So that's, you know, 14 elections in over three years. That's 42 elections and not a single seat has swung. I'm going to suggest that in a time in which we're not in love with all of our politicians, that the idea that, you know, no seat has swung in six years is... Um, has something to do with the you know power of those maps, um, so they're already really really powerful strong lines. It may take a huge blue wave, you know, a 55, 56 percent of the vote wave to even budge one or two of those seats. Um, so if people want to fix their a democracy now and not take a risk that. The lawmakers doing this in 2021 have even more sophisticated tools. And I don't care which side they're on. I don't care if it's Democrats or 
Republicans who, you know, happen to be holding these pins in 2021, we elect these people to two-year terms, not to 10-year terms. Um, and if they can entrench themselves into power for a decade based on one election that is wrong, it is undemocratic, we've got the chance in 40 days here to do something about it. David Daly, author of the book about gerrymandering called Rat Bleeped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Thank you so much for being here on Detroit Today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Detroit Today producer Jake Neer for that interview. Up next, we're going to hear from the president and treasurer of Voters Not Politicians, the group behind Proposal 2. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDETM. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Recent polling shows voters in Michigan may be ambivalent or at least a little confused about what the redistricting proposal entails. Ambivalence and confusion can result in people just voting no uh, as a default on a given measure. So how is the group organizing the proposal to effort feeling about their campaign with just a month to go. Joining us now to talk more about that is Katie Fahey, who is the president and treasurer of Voters Not Politicians. Katie, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, and I want to apologize up front for the short time that we'll have for this interview. We're going to try to get you back, of course, before Election Day to talk a little more in depth about the proposal. But but tell us first how you're feeling about uh, this campaign. You know, I actually am feeling good. I mean, I think right now we have this process that happens once every 10 years behind closed doors with people who don't want the general public paying attention. And now we have a proposal on the ballot, Proposal 2, that's allowing people to have a chance to bring that process out into the open and put voters back at the center of it. Um, And everybody we're talking to is excited about this proposal, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, independents, in the UP, in Detroit, wherever it may be, um, just we have to get the word out. And so that's what we're really focused on. Uh, What are you focusing on when you're talking to voters and what would be your focus in this last month? Yeah, so we're knocking a lot of doors to begin with. Uh, We've just knocked over 160,000 doors. There's thousands of people across the state volunteering to make that happen. And really, we're going and talking about the state of politics. I don't think many people think that politicians um, aren't influenced by special interests. And I think people want to see our politicians being more accountable to us, want to make sure that our votes are counted and our votes are heard. I think there's a lot of talk around even voter suppression, things like that. And a lot of people are ready to step up and try and change things to make it so that we can start getting on the right direction again um, for for our state. Mm -hmm. What about the polls? Uh, They don't show the kind of support that you would normally want to have at this point for a ballot proposal. Uh, Some people say you need 60 uh, in the polls to get 51 uh, on Election Day. I'm not sure that always pans out, but but, uh, your numbers are a little soft. Uh, What do you think that reflects? We're seeing about, you know, 48% of people feel like they really want this. But the great part is the people who don't want this, that's a much smaller amount. But we do see that about 20% of Michiganders haven't made up their mind about Proposal 2 yet, Um, which, again, I think makes a lot of sense because it's the redistricting process that happens once every 10 years behind closed doors. So we're really trying to get the word out about what does this independent commission mean for Michigan? How would this process work? Um, Trying to help inform people that, you know, that these people will be 
uh, going across the state to listen to communities and then draw these lines out in the open with criteria that makes it so that voters come first and that uh, those special interests no longer have that influence. And I think a lot of people support that idea, but there's a lot of elections out there right now. Three ballot proposals, the governor's race, all the local elections. So just trying to make sure that we can talk to people about gerrymandering and redistricting reform. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the opposition. Uh, has their campaign been pretty strong? Is that one of the reasons that you've had trouble getting that number over 50? You know, we do see a misinformation campaign out there. I know there's been a digital ad and, um, you know, a bunch of people who are, well, not a bunch of people, but some, some other uh, opinion articles that are out there. I think it's a little unfortunate because it really is just misinformation or lies about what this proposal stands for, but it's coming from a very small minority of the state. And those really are the people who have benefited from the status quo who are making those decisions right now. Um, and thankfully, most of the voters you know, across the state are excited about this. We started from a Facebook post and we're only able to uh, be successful through, you know, thousands of people volunteering. We have over 5,000 volunteers, over 16,000 donations to the campaign. So even though there is opposition out there um, that maybe is more well-funded than we are, we're still feeling really confident because the actual voters are the ones who are bringing this decision to the ballot box. Okay. Katie Fahey, president and treasurer of Voters Not Politicians. Great to talk to you. Here on yeah, Detroit thank today. you. Proposal yeah. to you on November 6th. <laughs> okay, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. The program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan, and the associate producer is Gus Navarro. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Remember, if you missed any of today's show, you don't have to miss out. You can hear it and all other past editions of Detroit Today on the Detroit Today podcast. Download and subscribe on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. This is 101.9 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.